You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. We're glad that you're here. Welcome. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. Ezekiel, uh, for those of you who are not sure where that is, that is one of the big prophetic books in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. If you need to, feel free to use the table of contents to get you there quickly. Ezekiel, chapter 18. That'll be kind of our our, uh, anchor text this morning. Ezekiel 18. Let's read this and then we'll get into our study. Starting in verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, Everyone according to his deeds, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and and, uh, this morning as we study this message and we study this topic, Lord, we ask that you would... Give us insight into it. Lord, help us to trust you in the areas that we struggle to understand. And Lord, would you help us to maybe uh, get some more understanding in this particular area that we might trust you more, that we might move from doubt, skepticism, and unbelief, Lord, that we might move into faith and belief, Lord, that we might lean in further based on the things that we see in your word today. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we started a new series, and it was, it's called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who. I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And what we're doing in this series is we're taking seven weeks. We're actually thinking about extending it another week, so it might end up being eight weeks. But we're taking this number of weeks to honestly look at some of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity and the Bible. A few months ago, we took a poll, we posted online, many of you took it, many of you shared it with friends and family, and we asked you, how would you complete this sentence? I could never believe in a God who. And the way that you complete that sentence really represents the things which you say are the biggest hurdles for you in fully embracing wholeheartedly Christianity and the Bible and really embracing the gospel without any reservation. So the things that you say, look, maybe you say, I am a Christian, I wanna believe, but this is still a hang up for me. Uh, it kind of you know, hinders me a little bit. Or maybe you're like, look, I will never be a Christian because this thing is such a deal breaker for me. And so we wanna talk about those things. Let's talk about them honestly. And, and here's our, our agenda. Our goal is that through this series, we want to help you move from doubt, skepticism, and unbelief. We wanna help you move into faith and belief. Here's why. Because we believe, based on the Bible, that what you believe matters. It matters very much. 
Or you know the most famous verse in the Bible. It says, God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that those who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so what you believe matters all of eternity. A relationship with God, it all hinges on what you believe. So what you believe matters. So we wanna help you to believe. Okay, but there's another goal that we have with this series and that is that we wanna equip you. We wanna equip you because we know that your friends, coworkers, family members, they struggle with these things too. We wanna equip you with some, some handles, some things that you can hold on to, some tools where you can have conversations with them and hopefully God can use you to help them move from skepticism and doubt to faith and belief in Jesus. So when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the struggles that people have is this. They say, I could never believe in a God who condoned genocide in the Old Testament. Condoned genocide in the Old Testament. So we took this poll. Uh, we asked you to participate. And I just want to share with you two responses that came in, which are actually related to our topic today, in, in a little bit conversely, right? So on the one hand, we have people who say, I could never believe in a God who condoned genocide in the Old Testament. But let me give you another perspective. Other people wrote in and said this, I could never believe in a God who allows good people to die and lets bad people live. Hang on to that, because that's going to be important to what we talk about today. Another person wrote in and said this, I could never believe in a God who allows children to be abused with no earthly consequences for those who make them suffer. Again, hang on to that thought because that is what we are gonna be talking about today. The word on the street. Let's talk about what is the word on the street when it comes to Bible, the Bible and genocide in the Old Testament and how to make sense of this. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, or how many of you have maybe even said this yourself, where you said, look, I'm down with Jesus. Like, Jesus is great. Love Jesus. It's the God of the Old Testament that I don't like so much, right? You said, you know, Old Testament God, no thanks, but Jesus, yes, please, right? How many of you have ever heard somebody kind of make that distinction and say, you know what? It seems that there's such a huge difference between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. I like the New Testament God. I don't really like the Old Testament God. Now, for those of you who might be new to the Bible, Christianity, let me just explain. Old Testament is the 39 books of the Bible that were written before Jesus was born. New Testament, 27 books, which are in the back of your Bible, right? They're the books that are written after Jesus, and they talk about Jesus. The books before that, they talk pointing to this person who will come, who we now know is Jesus, and the books after that talk about who he was. So Old Testament, before Jesus, New Testament, after Jesus. So Old Testament, right? They say, well, Jesus in the New Testament, he seems loving, he seems kind, but the God of the Old Testament, he seems angry. He's always talking about judgment and sin. And, uh, you know, for example, Jesus says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If someone slaps you on the cheek, don't slap them back. Turn the other cheek. The New Testament talks about God's love and God's forgiveness and in contrast to that, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God is raining down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's a God who sent his people to wage war against other nations. And in at least one case, which we're going to look at, he commanded his people to commit something that looks an awful lot like what we call today genocide. Let me read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 15, two verses. Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, the king, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Go and strike Amalek, that's a nation, Amalekites, Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's hard, isn't it? Okay, so in the New Testament, God loves the world. God sends his son to die so that sinners can be forgiven and redeemed. But here in the Old Testament, God is apparently ordering that some of these sinners be slaughtered in mass. Let me read you a quote from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, by the way, he's an outspoken atheist. He's what we might call an evangelical atheist, right? He's not just cool with being an atheist. He wants you to be an atheist. And here's what Richard Dawkins says about this and other passages in the Old Testament. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He's just right at it from the bat, right? All of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Well, Richard, why don't you tell us what you really think, right? Like, I mean, I'm actually kind of impressed. Those are some good adjectives. Like, I couldn't have even thought up those words, right? Like, I think, though, what Richard Dawkins is saying here sums up pretty well uh, what many people think about God in the Old Testament. And as a result, they have a hard time embracing the Bible as a whole. And they say, look, I could never believe in a God like that. I could never believe in a God like that. If that's the God of the Bible, well, then... um, I don't know if I can do this. And they might say, now one, some of you might say, well, hey, quick solution, easy fix. Here's what we should do. We'll just tell people, hey, look, just ignore the Old Testament and just read the New Testament and you'll be good because, you know, the Old Testament, it's weird, it's antiquated. It's like God's younger years, right? When he was angry and flew off the handle really fast and he was all into killing people and judgment. But now in the New Testament, God's kind of grown up and matured and he's super into love and forgiveness. He doesn't kill people anymore. The only problem is that that's not exactly accurate either. And so hey, let me give you a few, uh, just a few quick stats on the Bible. Okay, number one, they, did you know this? There are actually more passages in the Old Testament which talk about God's love and mercy and forgiveness than there are in the New Testament, right? And so this idea that the Old Testament God is angry and doesn't forgive, like Richard Dawkins is saying, and the New Testament God is loving and, you know, just kind of passive and stuff, not, not true, right? Like, there are more passages in the Old Testament which talk about God's love and forgiveness and mercy than there are in the New Testament. That's interesting. Kind of, you know, changes your viewpoint on it. Okay, here's another one. The New Testament is actually full of passages about God's judgment upon sinners. Did you know Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven? Okay, so this idea that the Old Testament's all about judgment and the New Testament's not, again, not really accurate. Uh, Thirdly, the New Testament doesn't make any sense without the Old Testament. And so you can't get rid of the Old Testament. In fact, the early Christians did not believe that they were worshiping a new or different God. They believed wholeheartedly they're worshiping the God of the Old Testament. When they studied the Bible, they studied the Old Testament. So we can't just get rid of the Old Testament. And finally, here's here's one other thing to keep in mind. There are multiple passages in the New Testament where God kills people. So this is something we have to deal with. 
We can't just get away with ignoring the Old Testament. That doesn't fix the issue. Because here's the question. If God is good and loving, how could a good and loving God command a bunch of people to be killed, including women and children? That's the issue, isn't it? We can't avoid it. To answer these questions, we're going to look at a passage from Ezekiel chapter 18 that we read just a few minutes ago. And we're going to focus on three areas. Three areas. Defining expectations, a solemn warning, and how to obtain mercy. So defining expectations, a solemn warning, and how to obtain mercy. So let's begin by talking about defining expectations. But let's look at our passage. In Ezekiel chapter 18, here's the situation. The people of Jerusalem have turned away from God. And as a society, they have embraced wickedness and and a lot of bad stuff. And for over a hundred years, God has been warning them. He sent them multiple messengers and prophets. And he's been warning them, guys, stop it. Stop these things that you're doing. It's not okay. And if you continue doing these things, I'm going to bring judgment on you as a whole, as a people. Now, the form that that judgment will take, and it eventually came. It, it hadn't happened yet at the time when this was, uh, chapter 18 was written. The form that this is going to take is that God is going to remove his protection from them, and he's going to allow another nation to attack them and defeat them. And in the process of that defeat, many of them will die. Uh, others of them who don't die will be taken into captivity. They will be kept as captives and slaves in a foreign land for many years. And here in chapter 18, again, the judgment hasn't happened yet. It's still a time of warning of what will happen unless they repent and change course. In other words, the judgment that's coming is not inevitable. It can be avoided. There is a way to escape this fate. But here's what happens. Rather than heeding this warning, even though it's been coming for a long time, what do the people respond? They respond by saying, God, that's not fair. It's not fair that you would do something like that. It's not fair. And what does God respond in verse, the end of verse 25? He says, what? Are you kidding me? How can you say that what I'm doing is not fair? You guys are the ones who are doing bad things. I've been patient. I've warned you. I've told you exactly what to do. And I've practically begged you to do it for a hundred years. And what have you done? You've just blown me off. You told me to get lost. And now you're telling me that I'm unfair? God says in verse 26, he says, look, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he's done, he will die. In other words, God's saying, what's unfair about this? This is, this is, there's nothing unfair going on here. This is completely fair. Earlier in the chapter, just look up a little bit to verse four in the same chapter. God says this, behold, all souls are mine. All souls are mine. And the soul that sins will surely die. The soul that sins will die. So God says, all sins are mine and the soul that sins will die. In other words, there's nothing unfair about this. This is very, the very definition of justice. Then he says in verse 27 and 28, continuing on, he says, look, on the other hand, if somebody repents of their sins, I am ready and willing, I am stretching out my hand, offering you mercy. And he finishes this section in verses 30 to 32 by giving this heartfelt plea, right? Just laying it out there. Guys, come on, right? And he says this, I will judge you, house of Israel, everyone according to their ways, But he says this, but repent, 
Repent from your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away all your transgressions that you've committed. Make yourselves a new heart, a new spirit. Why would you die? He says, I have no pleasure in the death of, the, of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So when it comes to defining expectations, there are three terms that we need to understand. They're really important. And they're terms that are used throughout the Bible, but they, they come into play here in this passage as well. And they're really relevant to what we're talking about. Three terms that we need to define and understand. First of all, justice, then mercy and grace. So justice, mercy, and grace. Let's define these real quick. Justice is giving someone what they deserve, whether, whether it's a reward or whether it's a punishment. Justice is getting what you've earned, getting what you've deserved. This is like when, when somebody fulfills the contract according to the contract and gives you what you deserve. That's fair. That's justice. When, when somebody commits a crime and they get the, the just punishment for their crime, that is justice. Now, mercy, on the other hand, is not giving someone the punishment that they deserve. So not giving someone the punishment they deserve. It's like when you get pulled over for speeding and the police officer lets you go with a warning even though you were legitimately speeding. Now grace, on the other hand, is something even different, right? Grace is when you give someone something that they don't deserve, right? This is a gift, right? Nobody deserves a gift. You get a gift uh, as, because it's given to you by the giver. Now in the book of Romans, here's what we read. It says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it tells us this other thing. The wages of sin, so we've all sinned, and the wages, what we deserve for doing that, is death. Now what that tells us is this. What all of us deserve is judgment. So if God were to give me what I deserve, it would be judgment. Why? Well, because I have broken his commandments. I've fallen short of his standard. All of us have, right? We say, none of us are perfect. I agree, exactly. That is exactly the point. None of us are perfect. The problem is that the wages of sin is death. And so what I deserve for my actions is God's judgment. When it comes to mercy and grace, however, it's important to remember this. Nobody deserves them. They aren't things that you deserve. Nobody's owed mercy or grace. They are gifts. They're acts of kindness. And, and so let's put it this way. You can't really understand mercy and grace unless you first understand justice and judgment, right? Those are the prerequisites for understanding mercy and grace is understanding justice and judgment. Now, now here's another aspect of this. The other thing that's important to understand about justice, grace, and mercy in the Bible is that we see that they have both temporal manifestations and eternal manifestations. You tracking with me? They have temporal manifestations and they have ultimate and eternal manifestations. I'll explain this. Uh, temporal, so every day, you and me, we experience God's mercy and God's grace. Every day. We, we do, uh, in temporal ways, right? In the sunshine, in the smile of a baby, right? We experience, you know, the fact that our needs are taken care of. James says this, he says, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What he's saying is that every gift, every good thing you have, is it's grace. It's God being kind and gracious to you. It, that's grace, it's mercy. You are experiencing God's kindness and grace and mercy every day, and yet, there is a special kind of grace and a special kind of mercy which has eternal implications. It speaks to your eternal destiny of your soul that through Jesus you can experience the gift of salvation. Now, at the same time, right? So that's mercy and, and grace. Let's talk about judgment. 
The Bible tells us that there is an ultimate judgment day when God will ultimately judge sin for everyone who's ever lived. You call it judgment day, you call it, you know, lots of things. But here's, here's the thing. It says that those whose names are written in the book of life will receive mercy and those whose names are not written in the book of life will be judged according to their actions. So that's judgment. That's the ultimate judgment which is to come. And yet, throughout the Bible, we also see that there are many temporal judgments. What do I mean by that? Temporal judgment. That's a time in which God intervenes in this life and he brings judgment on somebody for their actions, not in the final judgment which is to come, but here and now in this life while they are living now. Let me give you some examples. In the book of Genesis, there's this guy named Onan. Now, Onan sexually assaulted his sister-in-law and God killed him. Okay, so that's a temporal judgment. God's intervening and saying, I'm not gonna let you get away with that. I'm gonna just kill you right now, right? And so in the book of Acts, uh, we read about a member of the family, the royal family of Herod, who had, he had the apostle James killed. He had the apostle Peter arrested. And then he allowed people to worship him as God. He committed blasphemy. And it said that God said enough and also, he died on the spot. He was killed as well. So God struck him dead. That was a temporal judgment, right? We also read about a, a couple in the book of Acts, in chapter five in the book of Acts called Ananias and Sapphira. They were Christians, but they acted hypocritically in the church. We're like, whoa. And guess what? They portrayed themselves as something that they were not, and God struck them dead too. And, and now you might look at that and say, wow, like I was okay with it, like when God was killing like rapists and murderers, right? Like that was fine. But now liars and hypocrites, I mean, that's a bit harsh. I'm kind of nervous myself, right? Like I, I, maybe I need to be worried. And you might also ask the question, look, why would God kill Ananias and Sapphira, who are Christians who, who were telling lies in church? Why would he kill them, but he wouldn't kill Hitler? Why didn't he kill Stalin? Why didn't he kill other people? And here's the answer, I don't know and neither do you, only God knows the answer to that. And the question for you today to ask, kind of a prerequisite question is this, are you okay with that? Can you be okay with that? The fact that there are things which you don't know, that I don't know the answer to. Here's one thing to remember. Justice, grace, and mercy. These are divine prerogatives, right? They're God's prerogative. It's completely up to him who and when and how he gives justice and grace and mercy to in what order and in what way. It's his prerogative. See, at the root of all of our criticism of God is what? When we criticize God's actions, it's based on this. You are assuming that God has made a mistake, that God has made a mistake and that you would have done better. Like people in Ezekiel's time, right? We're here standing in judgment of God and saying, God, that's not right. You're unfair. Your actions are wrong. See, we're like armchair quarterbacks, right? Like we're watching the Super Bowl. We're yelling at the TV. We're like, that coach is the worst. How could he make that call? It's a terrible play. How come that guy didn't catch the ball? How come he didn't score? You're the worst. And yet at the same time, I can't even get up from the couch without like some assistance, right? Like I've got, I've got Doritos in my hair, right? And here I am telling, uh, telling the, you know, yelling at the TV and telling the coach that he should have done things differently. See, we do the same thing when it comes to God. We sit in the proverbial armchair of life and we pass judgment on God's decision. And the truth is there's a lot that we don't know. And we need to acknowledge that. There's a lot that God knows that we don't know. 
In Isaiah chapter 55, God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your, way, are, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What God is telling us here, and he's not saying this in a mean way, but he's saying this in a helpful way, that there's a gap between you and him. There's a gap between us and him. He goes on to say this, as High as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your ways. What is God saying here? What he's saying is this. There is an ontological gap between who God is and who you are. There's a gap, right? It's kind of like this for those of you who have pets. There is an ontological gap between you and your pet. That's why we don't have any cocker spaniels on the city council, right? There's a reason. Uh, Your dog might be really smart, right? Like maybe he can do things and you're like, wow, my dog is so smart. But there's a reason why you don't vote for your dog to be mayor. Because their dog's not able to access thought on the way that you are. In other words, there's an ontological gap. And just in the same way there's an ontological gap between you and your pet, there's an ontological gap between you and God that's even greater. And here's the deal. There are a lot of things that we do understand, that we can understand about God and about the world and about why things happen the way they do. But at the end of the day, God is telling us this, you are not me. And there are things that I see that you will never see. There are things that I know and understand that you will never know and understand. I am able to do things you can't do. And God is just reminding us in a loving way that he is high above us, And so when you and I try to wrap our heads around why he did something or why he didn't do something else, we need to keep this in mind that there are gonna be things that we will never fully understand and we need to be prepared for that. So let me just challenge you with this. If you can trust God in the things that you do understand, then will you trust him also with the things you don't understand? If you can trust God in the things that you do understand, I wanna challenge you, will you make that commitment in your heart and say, look, then I will choose to trust God in the things that I don't understand. And let me tell you guys, because that is actually what trust is, isn't it? Isn't that what faith is? It's when, see, it's easy to trust when you understand everything. That's not really trust, is it, right? It's when you don't understand, that's when trust is really trust. Okay, so let's talk about this next thing. So those are expectations, right? Defining expectations. Let's talk about a solemn warning, a solemn warning. This whole thing about uh, extermination and stuff like that, it's a solemn warning. So when we look at what the Israelites were told, how they were told to kill the Canaanites, the Bible makes it very clear that this was a temporal judgment upon them, right? Just like how God is allowing in Ezekiel chapter 18, he's talking about allowing the Babylonians to attack Jerusalem as a form of judgment upon them. That's what we are seeing with the uh, Canaanites earlier in the Bible. Genocide really is not an appropriate term for us to use for this. And, uh, you know, it's a term that's very, you know, emotionally charged in our society today, and rightly so. Rightly so, but here's what I'm telling you, that this, what's being described in the Bible here, I don't think deserves to be called genocide. It's not an appropriate term. I'll give you a few reasons why. Number one, these were military actions. These are military actions. And so what that means is that these people were not defenseless victims. And what it means is that most of the women and children would have fled, right? This, you know, think about terrorism. What makes terrorism terrible or, or you know, scary is that you never know when it's going to happen. But that wasn't the case here, right? Like they would array in in battle formation, right? There's plenty of time, plenty of warning. Uh, These were not sneak attacks. 
The women and children, if they wanted to, they would have had the chance to flee. So anybody who stuck around would have had to be hardened or stubborn, or they would have had to have been involved in the military action in some way. So that's the one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is this. These people were not attacked because of their race. This was a judgment from God through Israel because of their actions. In other words, Israel was God's instrument for judgment against these people. Now, in the future, it's not that that God won't judge that Israel's better or something, right? Because here's the thing. In the future, like in the time of Ezekiel, God will use other nations to judge the Israelites. And so it goes both ways. See, God makes this very clear in the Bible when he talks about why he did this. Let me just read to you a few verses that that explain how this worked. In Deuteronomy chapter nine, it says this. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. Again, it's not race, it's judgment, right? He says it's because of their wickedness. In Deuteronomy 18, he says this. It is because of these detestable practices that the Lord your God will drive out the nations before you. What detestable practices were these nations into? Well, it's very well documented historically, archaeologically. The Canaanite nations practiced bestiality. They practiced rape. They they practiced child sacrifice. That's why in the Old Testament, it says over and over, do not sacrifice your children like the other nations around you do because that's what they did. They would take their babies and they would put them, they would heat up this thing as like a big metal pan and they would sacrifice their babies on these burning, I mean, it's horrific. Beyond that, there were other practices in the Canaanite culture. Uh, For example, very regular sexual abuse of children. It was a regular practice. Specifically, boys being molested by older men. Do you remember those two, two questions we had, or two objections we had at the beginning? I can never believe in a God who allows children to be abused with no earthly consequences for their abusers. Well, that's exactly what we have going on here. That God is doing that. I could, you, you know, a person said, I could never believe in a God who allows bad people to live and good people to die. Well, here's a case in which God is, is actually doing temporal judgment. And yet there are some of us who look at it and we say, well, that's not fair. Like, in other words, we're not happy either way, right? Like, we're not happy when God is merciful, and now we're not happy when God enacts temporal judgment. So what do we want? That's almost like what God's saying in Ezekiel. You say I'm being unfair. I'm not being unfair right? Uh, Again, uh, after many years of God waiting patiently and giving warning after warning, in the case of the Amalekites, 400 years, eventually the time came when God said, enough, enough. I'm putting an end to this wickedness. I'm not going to let this continue. It's done, finished. Again, the word genocide doesn't really describe what's taking place in these military actions. This was a judgment against these people because of their sins. And what were their sins? Abusing children, raping women, killing babies. These are big deals, guys. This was a judgment against these people for their sins. Look at how Leviticus 18 describes this. It says this, Because the entire land has been defiled, I am punishing the people who live there, and I will cause the land to vomit them out. In Hebrew, the Hebrew language, there are two words for the word destroy. Now, some of you, some of you, maybe you speak uh, multiple languages and you know how this works, right? There's a word in one language that works really well, but there's no good translation for it in another language. That's kind of what we have here, right? So it says utter destruction, That's a specific Hebrew word, which we don't have a good word for in English. And that word in Hebrew is the word haram, haram. There's another word for destroy, which is related. It's the word chabal. 
You guys like how I do that? I practice that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Haram, chabal, right? And chabal uh, means to inflict pain and harm, okay? But the word haram is different. It means essentially to wipe something clean. In other words, to start with a clean slate. It's kind of like when you uh, clear your hard drive, you format your hard drive. What are you doing? You're destroying completely those files that are on there. Why? To create a clean slate. It's kind of like when you, you know, wipe the, the dry erase board and you destroy what's on it in order to make a clean slate. That's the idea here. And this idea, this is not the first time we see this in the Bible. Actually, the first time we see it is in Genesis chapter six, where it says that God looked at the world he created and he was grieved to the heart because he saw all the wickedness and evil in the world, and it says that he chose to wipe it all out. It's the word there again, haram. Why? To wipe a clean slate, start over. And he did that by sending a flood, and at that time, God killed 99.9% of the population. The idea here with haram, right, of, of this wiping things clean, the idea is that God is reclaiming this land. He's reclaiming it. These people who have lived there have been exceedingly wicked. They've done bad things. And God says, I'm going to put a stop to that. And not only that, I'm going to replace them with another nation of people in that land who will live according to my moral code. And they will be a light to the world. And through them, I will bring salvation to the world through Jesus, the Savior that he's going to bring into the world through these people who he's putting in this place and supplanting the other nation with. Now, I'm not asking you to like that. I'm not asking you to be happy about it and say, yes, I'm, I love this. But I am asking you to do this. Understand that this is not genocide. This is a judgment against these people for their sins as a society. And what I want you to see is this. God did not do these things glibly. He didn't do them gleefully. He didn't do them with a smile on his face. Look again at Ezekiel chapter 18. God says there in verse 23, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? In verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. See, there's a difference between doing something that's right and doing it with a tear in your eye and doing something glibly and gleefully, and that's, that's what's going on here. God's doing what's right. He doesn't regret doing it. But he doesn't do it glibly. He doesn't do it gleefully. He does it with a degree of pain in his heart. The destruction of the Canaanites is an example of temporal judgment. And this temporal judgment serves as a picture and a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment, which is to come. So it's a solemn warning. And here's what the Bible says. It says that God has appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. Jesus said something really interesting. Think about this. He said this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot feel the soul, uh, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Here's the thing. We get really upset about the fact that God ordered these people to be killed. Why? Because in our society, people believe that the worst thing that can ever happen to you is for you to die. But we don't believe that. We don't, I don't believe that, do you? Right? Jesus says, no, that's not the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Death is, is actually, I mean, death isn't actually that big of a deal, I guess you could say. You know what's a really big deal? What happens to you after you die? That's a really big deal. Don't worry so much about death, Jesus is saying. What you should really be worried about, what should really concern you, is what will happen to you after you die. See, because here's the deal. For all of us, at some point, you're going to die. I hope I'm not give, telling you something you don't know, right? Like, 
unless Jesus comes back while we're still alive, it's not a question of if you will die, it's a question of how you will die and when you will die, but all of us are going to die. And the Bible says that God holds every one of our breaths in his hands. In other words, God is in control over whether you live or whether you die, and you can't die without God allowing you to die. In other words, God is intimately involved in the death of every single person who dies, every single person who ever lived. And there's a sense in which the fact that God allows us to die in this life is an act of mercy. And maybe you say, what? Let me explain. In the book of Genesis chapter three, after the man and the woman sinned, sin comes into the world, death comes in because of sin, and a curse, right, this dark cloud, a curse comes over all of God's good creation. And it says this, that after that happened, after they sinned, it says this in Genesis 3, God drove them out of the garden that he had created for them, and he placed a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Why? It says there in the prior verse, it says this, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. In other words, God was preventing them from eating from the tree of life and, and living forever. And I remember when I first read that, I'm like, that is weird, right? Like, why would God want to prevent them from living forever? Isn't that what God's all about? Like, why wouldn't he be like, hey guys, here's the tree, eat from it and live forever. It wasn't until later on that I understood why this happened. This was actually an act of love and mercy on God's part that he allowed them to die. Why? Here's why. Because God in his mercy did not want these people to live forever in a fallen state, in a fallen world. Guys, that would be a tragedy. And so God intervened and he said, I'm gonna let you die so that one day I'm gonna come and I'm gonna make a way for all things to be made new. A new heaven, a new earth, things will be right. And I will make a way for you to be resurrected, to live with me again forever. In order for that to happen, you have to die. See, in God's mercy, he allows us to die so that by his grace, we might live again forever in the world to come. Now, how do, how do we get there? I'm gonna tell you that in just a second, but let me just wrap up this thought by saying this. What I wanna suggest to you is that there's a sense in which there can be a degree of mercy involved in some deaths, perhaps even in the deaths of some of these Canaanite peoples. Maybe you've seen somebody who was really suffering and you felt bad for feeling it or saying it or praying it, but you prayed, Lord, please just have mercy and take them now. I don't want them to suffer anymore. See, when it comes to these Canaanites, not only did the women and children of these cultures, not only did they suffer regular abuse and violence, many people believe that what the Bible teaches is that there's such a thing as an age of accountability. What that means is that just like our laws treat people differently depending on their age, right? Like our laws treat an eight-year-old differently than they treat a 28-year-old, or a person with cognitive disabilities, some people believe that the Bible teaches that if someone has a cognitive disability or they die before a certain point of accountability, that God shows them special mercy and they will be in heaven. Actually, in our community groups, we've got some verses for you to study, so grab the community group study guide this week and discuss it in your groups. I don't know, honestly. I don't know that for sure, but I do know this, that like we studied in the book of James just recently, this life is a mist, right? In the big picture of eternity, this life is a blip on the radar. Whether you're here for 20 years, whether you're here for 80 years, it's a relatively short amount of time either way. And after this comes eternity. And the temporal judgment of the Canaanites is really a picture, it's a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment which is to come. Guys, we're all gonna die. 
The worst thing that can happen to you is not for you to die. That's gonna happen whether you want it to happen or not. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to receive judgment rather than mercy. The ultimate judgment rather than the ultimate mercy. And the big question is this. Everybody dies. Are you ready for what comes after that? And let's talk and close briefly with this last thought. How to obtain mercy. One of the things that's important to remember about the destruction of the Canaanites is that these people did have an opportunity to receive mercy. And let me tell you this. You can read up on it. Deuteronomy chapter 20. God tells the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, he tells them, here's what I want you to do. When you approach a city and you're gonna go to battle with it, I want you to offer that city terms of peace. You're gonna offer them terms of peace. And what that means is the terms basically requiring the people of the city, if they want to not fight, right? Here's what they need to do. They need to forsake their old identity and their old culture. They need to join the people of Israel. They need to bring themselves under the lordship of the God of Israel, which means taking up his design for how to live their lives. Now, as far as we know, there were only a few Canaanites who ever took them up on this, but there were some. Maybe the most famous that you've heard of is a woman named Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho. But what it means is this. It means that the people did have a chance to avoid this judgment. Some of them did, but many of them didn't. And that brings us back to Ezekiel chapter 18, where God tells us, judgment is coming, but I'm offering you mercy. And what did they have to do to receive that mercy? It says there, verses 30 and 31, repent, turn from your transgressions. To repent means to change directions. You were going one way, now you change directions. You go a different way, right? You're pursuing some things, now you pursue different things. And he says, receive a new heart and a new spirit. And what that brings us back to is what? It brings us back to us, right? The Bible tells us, this is a sign, a picture of us, that there is an ultimate judgment to come and God is extending to us an offer of mercy, How foolish would it be for us to ignore that offer of mercy and to perish unnecessarily? We've been talking about these three things, justice, mercy, and grace, and how these are aspects of who God is and how he works. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. But here's the problem with that. If justice means giving someone what they deserve and mercy means not giving someone what they deserve, then by definition, if God shows mercy, then he's not doing justice, is he? Have you ever thought about that? How can God be both a just and merciful God at the same time without compromising either of those? In fact, that's a question that some people would say is the the core tension of the Old Testament. That as you read through the Old Testament, there's this building tension in which you're wondering, it's building up to this question, who will God turn out to be in the end? Will he turn out to be a God of justice or will he turn out to be a God of mercy? Because if if he's merciful, it compromises justice. What will he do? And the tension isn't even resolved in the Old Testament. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. It's only resolved when we get to Jesus. And what happens in Jesus? In Jesus, we see that God became one of us so that he might take the judgment that we deserve so that we could receive mercy. See, in in Jesus, God's justice is fully satisfied so that we can receive God's mercy by God's grace a gift that we could never earn or deserve. See, friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And the way to receive that grace by putting your trust in Jesus and not in yourself, in what Jesus Christ did for you. Rather than asking God to give you what you deserve, you ask God to give you what Jesus earned for you through his life and death and resurrection. In Isaiah 55, you know what else it says in that same passage about God's ways being higher than ours? It says this, 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his ways. Let the righteous man, the unrighteous man forsake his unrighteous thoughts and let them return to the Lord so he may have compassion on them and to our God for he will abundantly forgive. Maybe there are things that you struggle with when it comes to the Bible. Maybe you come away from this teaching maybe a little bit emotionally unsatisfied. I get that. I wanna encourage you, don't let those things stop you. Don't let them hold you back from seeking God while he may be found and receiving his grace and mercy. I want to challenge you that as you trust God in the things that you do understand, I want to challenge you to to take that step and say, I will also trust him, therefore, in the things that I struggle to understand. Because guys, that's what trust is all about. So may we receive his grace and mercy today. May you trust in him, even in those areas where you struggle to understand. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is true. In all your ways, you do what is right. Lord, would you help us that just as we we feel that we can trust you in the things we do understand, Lord, would you help us to have the faith and the trust to say, I will also trust God in the areas where I don't understand, where where it, it doesn't make sense to me yet or I don't feel fully satisfied. Lord, that is what trust is all about. So would you give us, by your spirit, the gift of faith. I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what? There are some things I struggle with. Lord, today I pray that they would, they would be willing to set aside those things they don't understand for the very clear message and offer of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And Lord, may you build up our faith as we walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.